welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. As always, I'm Troy, and wow, it has been a whirlwind of a fall. I don't know about you guys, but it seems like it's just blink of an eye. So as I'm recording this bumper, it's the uh, 10th of November, and it just seems like um, October just went by in a flash, and and before we know it, we're going to be carving turkeys and some of you turkeys already have your Christmas lights up. So I won't get into that, but yeah, you know what it is. All of this is just going to go by at lightning speed, but I am just, I'm just really excited to be in this groove right now. We've had some really good interviews. It just seems like things are kind of picking up steam, uh, building momentum as we talk with other individuals and and the networking that's going on with that, it's, it's just exciting. And it's exciting to, to just find more and more people getting into pastured piggery. And, um, and it, it, I don't know, it just, it just seems inspiring to me. It, it's really rekindled my desire to get my operation back up and, and bigger and, and, and have an actual growth plan. I, I know those of you guys have listened for a while that we, we scaled back simply because of our processing situation. And that, I believe, has corrected itself. We'll know here soon because we actually have six beeves. Beeves is the proper term, I guess. We have six beeves that are going to process on November 12th. And the, we'll be using this USDA processor that's only 45 minutes from the house. Love that. And we'll see how that goes. And, and that's really going to set the stage for uh, what 2023 looks like here on Red Tool House when it comes to the amount of uh, pigs I'm going to finish. I have two sows that have seemed to settle. And so their farrowing will be in January, which um, I think we can be ready for that. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to say 99% confident we'll be ready for it, but you know how that goes. That 1% can always bite you. But be ready for that so we could have, um, you know, I'd love to have as, as many as 20 pigs in those litters uh, to be on the, on the ground and, and be viable and be raised out and, and just see how this goes. Like I said, it's kind of, kind of be a systematic process. We're going to see how the beef processing goes, how our experience with the processor is there. And that'll really set the stage to see uh, if we have successful farrowings, uh, Lord willing, then how many of those we're actually going to finish versus uh, selling off for um, wieners or growers for other people. But we'll see how that goes. So along the lines of raising interest in pastured pigs, um, I got a, a quick funny story I want to share with you all. And this is this is still fresh on my mind because it's it's kind of going on right now. So again, those of you that have been on the podcast or know the podcast or listen to me yammer on for uh, what are we in 90 some episodes now, you know that before I started the podcast, we have a YouTube channel that kind of details what we do here on our farm slash homestead and um, 600 and some odd videos in the kitty right now that we've built over the past seven years. So it's it's been you know, just tons and tons of content, and you just never know what's going to raise people's eyebrows and get people interested to say, hey, I want to watch this video. Sometimes videos do nothing. Sometimes they just take off for no reason. Well, here recently, one of those videos just took off for no reason, and it was actually influenced by one of the pastured pig uh, uh, interviews I've done recently. And it was a conversation I had with the interviewee where we were just talking about how pigs clear land. And I thought, you know, I wonder how many people outside of the pastured pig world really understand how beneficial pigs are. And and that's such a value-added service they bring to the the farm. So I did a video about that of, you know, if you have raw land, here's why you need pigs now. And holy moly, that thing has taken off like gangbusters. It is, I don't even think it's two weeks old yet, and it's, uh, I believe it's its going to surpass 100,000 views here in the next, uh, probably in the next two hours. And, you know, my videos don't normally don't get anywhere near that. And it's just, it's crazy to see that take off. But 
What's interesting is how many people in the comment section, if you're really, really bored or you have a really lower intestinal, big lower intestinal issue that keeps you in a certain facility for a long time, bring up our and, and flip through the comments and, and just read some of the comments because it's, it's people like, I had no idea. Can I do this? Can I do that? I, you know, I was going to do this and I've never thought about pigs. And I, I, I'm thinking, man, did I, did I let the genie out of the bottle here? Are, are we causing issues? Because some of the other comments were people really upset. The fact that, oh, yeah, if you want feral pigs, do this, do what this joker's talking about. If you want, you know, ask Texas and Louisiana how great this idea is. And and I think I really ticked off about most of Texas in the process because, man, there were some there were some really uh, angry comments that were made about that. So it was interesting. And I'm like, wow, OK, yeah, we've we've struck a nerve clearly uh, on both sides of this issue. And it's really caused me to to do some more research. In fact, I'm, I'm still collecting information from various sources just to see are pastured pigs responsible for the feral pig population in some of these areas especially in the deep south and what i'm finding is the answer is no no they are not that these pigs were introduced back in the 1800s and early 1900s um, as eurasian pigs and then there's a lot of transport where people are taking these wild pigs that they're capturing and they're taking them to other parts of the country so that they can release them there to have additional game to hunt. So it's really kind of these game farm slash hunting preserves and they say, hey, we've got impregnable impregnable fence that are going to keep the pigs in. And then, of course, as everyone knows, the pig proves them wrong. Um, so it's really interesting. So it, it's it's I kind of find myself wanting to crusade against uh, all these people that are saying, you know, this is this is how you cause feral pig issues. But there is something to an escaped pastured pig that nobody's going to be responsible for that, even though it's a domesticated breed, that there is a generational opportunity for them to return to being well, not return to becoming feral. Um, so it, I don't think it's a smoking gun to say absolutely not, but it's it's nowhere near the blame game that some people want to say. Anyway, that was totally, totally a different conversation there. But I just I just thought that was interesting. And again, you just don't know what's going to raise people's attention. But um, 100,000 views of people that are that either were completely unaware that pigs would do what they can do. Or uh, 100,000 people are like, oh, I can't believe this Joker's promoting that because that's going to just make things worse. But anyway, get a, if you get a chance, check that. At least check out the comments. I don't want to necessarily plug, hey, watch my video, but um, read the comments. They're, they're, they're quite interesting. Well, along the lines of social media, um, keep in mind the Pastured Pig Facebook group is out there. It's a closed group. Just answer one simple question. You can join. Uh, we've had some good conversation going on there, and and seems like I'm approving people daily. So it's it's growing. It's not you know lightning speed, but it is growing. So there's good discussion happening there. And of course, our Patreon. I, I appreciate we've we've picked up several new supporters here in the last couple of weeks. And I really appreciate that. And again, it's uh, it's not that I want to be a beggar and, and, and ask for money, but it, that really is to me a, a metric of how much value you guys find in this. Uh, like I said, you know, two and a half years in, 90, creeping up on 96 episodes, I believe. And it's one of those things where with, with a podcast, you kind of feel like you're just talking in the abyss because there's not that immediate response opportunity that, uh, that you have. So when, when you guys do that and it's something as little as $5 a month, when you support that, then that really just to me is, is probably some of the best feedback I get to say, wow, okay, people do find value in this. They, they find this to be more than just interesting that there is something that that they're gleaning from this. So I appreciate that. If it's something you can do, obviously, I know the economy is not the greatest right now and we're all watching our dollars. So if, if you've been watching, if you've been listening to the podcast since day one, and you're on 95 episodes and you haven't been able to support, I get it. Uh, you know, I don't want to shame anyone into um, that, that you, you feel obligated to do it. But if you have that opportunity, really appreciate it and really appreciate support. And, and I, I, I promise we're, we're still exploring all kinds of different things that we want to add to Patreon support and, and really want your all's feedback as well, because, um, I don't know necessarily develop something that you guys don't found valuable, but if you are a supporter or you're thinking about supporting say, Hey, I, I think maybe this would be very helpful. Then, then give me that feedback and we'll see what we can do to incorporate that 
into our Patreon options. Well, okay, enough about me. Let's talk about you. No, no, let's get into our interview. And I want to jump into this because this this is um, this was a good interview. I enjoyed this one. This is um, kind of the second one where we were talking to various breed associations. Uh, so today in this podcast, we'll be talking with uh, Corey Edge, who is the executive director of the American Berkshire Association. And you know, this association obviously has a storied history, been around a while. And so it's, it's really interesting to see the scale and the magnitude in which this association operates. So, Corey, we, we spend some time really just talking about uh, you know, the breed itself at first, but then we really get into the association and, and, and why, if you do anything with Berkshire, why it's um, advantageous to be a member and, of course, even to register your Berks. So without any uh, further yammering, let's jump into that discussion, and I'll catch you guys on the tail end. Today we're going to uh, tiptoe in the land of another breed association, and I've really enjoyed these conversations so far, and I think this one is not going to disappoint at all. Today I have, I'm going all the way to the top, I've got Corey Edge, who's the Executive Director of the American Berkshire Association. Welcome, Corey. Hey, Troy. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and and talk with me. I know... um, Time is of the essence right now. I'm sure there's a lot going on in the association. It's a pretty big. It's a pretty large association, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, of the major swine breed associations, Berkshire's is definitely one. Uh, not only of the most historied, but uh, certainly one uh, we span across the country. And, and very excited to uh, to be able to showcase some of that. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm going to. Um, we're going to talk about the association specifically here in a little bit, but first I want to give Corey the opportunity to introduce himself. And Corey, I didn't even mention this in pre-screening, but if you would just introduce yourself and um, maybe some some history. You know how how did you end up being the executive director? Uh, I I don't want to make make um, assumptions, but uh, looking at your headshot on the on the website, you seem like a fairly young fella. So how does a young fella become the uh, the executive director of the American Berkshire Association? Sure, sure. Well, and you'd be correct. Uh, although my my hairline might be receding just a little faster <laughs> than ideal, uh, <laughs> I uh, yes. So I, I started uh, um, in my career in the in the agriculture industry. Um, you know, growing up on a family farm, a um, little bit of a diversified livestock uh, and row crop background. But um, you know, directly out of college, I. You know, took a um, a path in the ag industry that I maybe wasn't as passionate about, and um, I saw that the uh, position for a director of Berkshire operations was open uh, initially, and so um, you know, I figured I'd stick my neck out there and give it a shot because uh, the the swine industry and the livestock industry is something that I've been so passionate about from a young age, and that's kind of where um, I thought I could bring some of my experience and, and talents uh, from my first uh, three or four years in my career into this position um, and really try to help make some waves and some differences here within the association. So, um, you know, the the uh, board at the time, um, you know, I think uh, took a bet on me and, and here we are. So um, been with the association since September of 2020. Um, so just a little over two years now. Hmm. So... Very good. So, so what what would you say the role is as the executive director? I mean, is it just any and all things? <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of have to, you know, uh, association. Although um, we are large in litter recordings and other things, um, we are small in staff. Um, we actually have two full time staff and one part time staff here in the office. So uh, you have to wear several hats. Um, I. Um, I don't necessarily do much of the litter registrations and recordings um, and things of that nature, but really my position is to kind of help with the strategic, um, you know, overall view of, of the growth and sustainability of the, of the Berkshire breed um, and of the, the membership, um, you know, who, who elect a, a nine member board of directors to basically create policy and, and develop initiatives to help progress the breed forward. And so 
um, those things uh, come through me and, 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 you know, we try to put together uh, those items and, you know, execute those. And those are, those are my primary responsibilities. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of layers underneath that, as you can imagine. Uh, but, you know, that's the primary function of my position. Excellent. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the breed specifically a little bit. And, and I think a lot of our, uh, our audience, uh, being the Pastured Pig podcast, has, has a working knowledge of the Berkshire breed. But um, in your experience, what do you see? Maybe are there some uh, misunderstandings or are there some things that the association you kind of try to resist and try to work against? Are there challenges with this breed? Is the breed really, really taken off right now? And then even what you're seeing, you know, again, we're, we're kind of in the genre of, of pasturing pigs. So how are you seeing that outlay with um, more traditional uh, uh, swine methods? Sure. Um, I've often visited with several folks that, you know, obviously their um, their practices may be different from one another in terms of uh, the environment that these, uh, these Berkshire pigs are being raised in. But I think uh, it's an overwhelming uh, amount of people, regardless of their situation, that talk about just the hardiness of the breed in general. They're tough animals. Um, and, and I think that's one of the unique traits that, that Berkshires do possess, um, you know, as far as just purebred swine is concerned, um, you know, and, and you talk about uh, all the advantages that, that the breed has in terms of meat quality. Um, I think that's been a known staple of anybody that's, um, you know, tried to get into heritage breeds or, or anything of that nature, um, you know, know that, that the Berkshire breed is not only, um, you know, when, when you have, you know, a pork chop on your plate or something like that, uh, you can taste the difference, but it's not only that, um, you know, it's been tested. Uh, so, you know, through our association and other efforts, I mean, there's, there's been um, decades of research that has gone into, um, you know, studying the quality of, of, of Berkshire pork. And so there's a, there's a really, really uh, high demand for that. Um, even within the niche pork market community, um, you know, the supply it has been an issue. Uh, you know, the, it just seems like producers can't, uh, can't make enough fast enough. Um, which I guess, uh, Troy, if you want to talk about maybe, um, some, some points of emphasis or, or ways that Berkshire breeders and producers are trying to, um, you know, advance the breed genetically is, you know, Berkshires have been known to be a little slower growing. Um, their litter sizes maybe aren't as high as some other breeds, but I think if you take into the account that, um, you know, they're exceptionally good mothers, they're great milkers, and they, um, you know, produce a high quality product at the end of the day, um, on top of being a, a hardy animal, um, there's, there's a ton of value in the Berkshire breed. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, another thing that's interesting, you know, that I visit about, uh, quite a, quite a bit with, with Berkshire breeders, um, as far as misconceptions is that, um, you know, there are a lot of programs that have tried to take advantage of the Berkshire name, uh, when marketing, you know, Berkshire pork or whether that be, um, pasteurized or not. And so, um, I think one of the challenges that Berkshire breeders face is, you know, combating um, the difference between a a black pig that has white on it um, versus an actual registered Berkshire pig. Yeah. Um, and I could, you know, to to the horn of the 147 year history of the American Berkshire Association, um, but I think it's it's the breed is so recognizable um you know they say legend has it that the pig was discovered in england you know 300 years ago by oliver cromwell's army and uh you know the, these berkshire pigs had a very distinct look um you know as far as six white points and and the shape to their their head and their body and, and things of that nature and 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 then obviously things followed suit after that and and we uh you know we brought the first Berkshire pig to the United States in 1823. So there's, there's so much uh, history involved with the breed too, that, you know, over the course of time, I could see how, um, 
you know, whether that be type changes or environmental changes, different practices and raising pigs um, can certainly influence the breed. And, and I think it has, and, and it's so interesting with this deep rooted history that the Berkshire breed has is how much ebb and flow goes into the breed, um, you know, when it comes to genetic uh, advancement or uh, progress uh, of, of different ways to raise these pigs. And so that's, uh, really kind of a unique trait that, that the Berkshires have compared to other purebred swine breeds is um, that history has stuck with the breed for so long um, that there are many different types of uh, environments that these Berkshire pigs can be raised in. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, wow. There's a lot to unpack there. So I'm see if I can, there th- is. I can see if I can thread this needle here. So uh, let's back all the way up to to finish weight and finish time. So again, Berkshire being a heritage breed, you get kind of, in my mind, I try to picture a spectrum here that there's the, this line down the middle of what we consider conventional breed and heritage breed. So Berkshire is on that that right side of heritage is on the right. So it's in that heritage breed. But what is, from Ural's perspective and Ural's experience, what is the typical finish time for a Berkshire, a purebred Berkshire? You know, um, I've got some breeders that have put such a such an emphasis on it um, that they say they can they can get it done in six or seven months. Okay. Um, you know, in in some some ways that that, that is realistic. Um, you know, I would think maybe with more of a a pasture type of a setting um, or things of that nature, you're probably looking more at um, eight months, eight and a half months. Uh, to finish those pigs to a weight that's, you know, appropriate. And, uh, you know, just the the feed conversion of, of Berkshires we've seen in our own research trials has been very good. Um, but I think obviously environment and diet play a lot uh, into that. So Absolutely, um, yeah. I think if the pigs are, are cared for, it's not realistic to think that, that finish time can't be between, you know, seven and a half and eight and a half months. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the number I've always had in my head is, is that eight to nine month window there obviously being on pasture you know like you said environment plays a key diet and you know how much the movement they're going to have but so so the thing that i find and this is where getting your opinion from the association i think is really going to be valuable is the berkshire name is so recognized as coveted pork and i see a lot of producers that say i have berkshire and you don't necessarily get down in the muddy waters of excuse me if it's if it's pure red burke or if it's you know a, a hybrid cross or if it's you know it's like you said a black pig with a white spot on it and they're like yeah that's a bircher uh because they want to be able to take advantage of the marketing side of that and say yes we've got berkshire pork it is quality stuff and it may not necessarily even be berkshire at that point but it's that's the coveted um and i'm saying people are being deceptive but they may have been sold sold an animal that yeah that's a berkshire and and not really follow through that so as from an association perspective how much do you run into that and is there a certain level of frustration that you guys see with that yeah well like we say the the proof is in the pedigree and and that is where you know if anybody purchasing um berkshire pork wants concrete traceability um to truly know that that the product that they are they are purchasing or the animal that they are breeding with is in fact a Berkshire. Uh, there's no better way than to have that physical piece of paper in your hand that has the animal's information on it. Uh, you know, with a three to five generation, uh, you know, uh, on both sides of the pedigree there to, to know sire and dam and, and things of that nature. So, so that's number one is the, the proof is in the pedigree. And so for, for anyone out there um, that may be listening that you know, has Berkshires that are not registered or thinks that they have Berkshires that are not registered, um, you know, when you are going into and utilizing um, the Berkshire name in your marketing, um, you know, how, how can you prove to your customer uh, that what you are selling that product is in fact what you're claiming it is. So, you know, it, it, the Berkshire pork industry has been very, very interesting. Um, you know, when, uh, you know, programs of the past, everybody um, that knows Berkshire most likely has heard the name Berkshire gold in the past. That was a program established by the ABA in the late uh, 1990s and early 2000s um, that ultimately 
was a half-blood program um, to take advantage of the markets that were happening overseas and in China and so forth. Um, but I think uh, once the export market kind of shifted a little bit for niche pork, you know, there was maybe a little bit more of a need uh, within the U.S. to create some sort of a marketing program uh, that Berkshire producers could take advantage of through the association. Well, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, the association's role is not to sell your pork, but what we can do is provide tools and resources um, and build industry connections to assist our membership in being able to get the most profit, um, you know, for their uh, quality product that they are producing. So actually, Troy, it's it's, uh, it's good timing here. We, um, this, this summer, we launched a new uh, branded program through the American Berkshire Association called Registered Berkshire Pork. So this again, takes advantage of the fact that, you know, the proof is in the pedigree and we, we've got that uh, ability um, to, to show some traceability and some heritage um, with with the products that's that are being marketed. Um, but we've also developed um, tools and resources for our membership um, that they can take direct to the consumer um, that talks about Berkshire pork, you know, the, the advantage of um, pork quality and taste and flavor, um, but also talks about the heritage of the association and, and the history um, of the breed and, and the fact that you know, the producers that are raising Berkshire pigs um, are doing so because they know it's a, a superior um, heritage breed that, you know, it is, um, again, all those things that I talked about earlier about, um, you know, mothering ability and, and being a, an easy animal to raise just in terms of hardiness and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it is a challenge because at times we face, um, you know, we kind of call them uh, rogue uh, Berkshire uh, marketing campaigns that that have no proof. Um, there, there's no way, even if you uh, were to look at some of the, the images and things uh, uh, that they are posting, you know, those pigs don't look like Berkshires. And, and that's, that's an even harder point, um, especially in this time where consumers want to know so much about where their food comes from and what... Uh, um, you know, what practices are, are being, you know, taken to raise those animals. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I think there's so much more value um, in having that pedigree from a marketing standpoint. Um, and then now with the association, uh, you know, we've developed this, this registered Berkshire pork brand. Uh, I think it just adds another layer to, uh, I guess, maybe being the authority on Berkshire pork versus uh, letting some of these, rogue type programs take over yeah yeah i love it i I love i love how you've tactfully worded that to the the rogue uh, rogue breeders and rogue programs so so i I, the thing i find interesting and this and maybe this is barking up the wrong tree but i i I would like your opinion on this because i see a lot of producers especially the pastured pork producers who are balancing you know, the 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 pros of the, that they see with Berkshire, and then it may be some of the pros they see of other breeds. So they really kind of focus on this this hybrid vigor approach. So they they say we have a Berkshire Duroc cross, or we have a Berkshire, you know, whatever cross. So from your perspective and marketing that through you know registered Berkshire pork approach, how would you recommend those people? Um, properly notify or properly market the fact that yeah this is partially berkshire and partially some other breed how how would you want to see them show that pedigree or is is that even an issue at that point because i know a lot of people really don't mess with a pedigree at that point when they're when they're dealing with hybrids sure sure um you know that that is a it's an interesting topic uh you know there's there's so many um, breeders out there that i think understand the value of a hybrid cross. Um, I think that's as, as a livestock minded person myself, uh, as a, as a livestock breeder, you know, those are things that you have to consider, you know, um, some, you know, when, when is it appropriate to bring an outcross into a purebred operation? Um, you know, obviously those animals can't be registered. So you do lose the value of that. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I do think just speaking for Berkshire Crosses specifically, um, 
you know, in, in a uh, pork market setting, you know, there is there's some value in a, in a Berkshire Duroc cross um, or, or Burak, if you will. Um, you know, that, that uh, you know, you're taking probably two um, of the highest meat quality breeds and crossing them together in hopes that you can create some some sort of a hybrid animal F1 cross that that has uh, you know traits of both that that could be successful. Um, you know, as far as marketing that's concerned, you know, I think um, you know with with what the uh, National Swine Registry's done with with um, certified Duroc pork and what we're uh, working through with with registered Berkshire pork, you know, there there could be um, you know opportunities in the future, and I don't want to speak for. For anyone uh, here, and, and this is all hypothetical, but you know, there's there's certainly opportunities for folks that are utilizing those crossbred programs or those F1 crosses to, um, you know, to be able to market, uh, you know, them as heritage breed crosses. Um, and honestly, I don't know that there's any other way to do it because, uh, like you mentioned, you know, you kind of once you do the cross, you kind of lose the value of the pedigree, and so there's no um, you know, concrete proof there. Um, yeah, that those picture what, what they're claiming they are. But, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I do think that there's some value in some hybrid vigor. So uh, without without trying to read between the lines or box you into a corner, so do you think somewhere in the future there is a new registered breed association or a breed that comes out that is you know, a Barack or something like that to say, hey, we we see the value in this, and and we had the, the only reason I'm thinking that is we had the IPP association on a couple weeks ago, and you know something that's much much newer. And it's like, you know, is, is that smoke and mirrors? Is that something that actually has value? Is that something that, um, that we could see in the near future of, of something that's registered because it's such a productive cross? Yeah. I'm not so sure that that's sustainable, you know, in the, in the commercial pork industry, when, um, you know, the, the Hampton Rock cross on the boars and, and the F1 white line females were being introduced into, you know, pork production. I, I don't think that those crosses, although they're valuable, um, you know, warranted any uh, additional, you know, registration process uh, because of that, you know, and, and I don't, I don't foresee that being a, a process even down the road that would take place. It, it may be just more of a, um, a marketing uh, type of a strategy uh, for some folks and, uh, and who knows, I mean, uh, somebody might uh, decide that, that that's the best uh, cross out there for niche pork production. And, um, you know, we could be looking back on this conversation and say, well, <laughs> we were probably a little wrong there, Corey. But uh, I think I don't, I don't see it being a sustainable opportunity in the future, uh, but certainly one that I think people try to take advantage of. Excellent. Excellent. Good answer. Appreciate that. Great. So, um, so I, and I don't want to come back. I want to miss, I want to make sure I don't, pass over the obvious because we have to look that not all not all farmers are are necessarily looking at producing niche pork or even finished pork at that point that we could be dealing with uh, breeders that are just trying to maintain the line the line purity and they're the ones that are producing quality livestock for then those of us who finish um you know, finish for consumer production to say, Hey, if you want, even if you want to do a cross, you'll always be able to get registered Berkshire, you know, sires and dams from us. And, and then it's up to the next farm to then say, well, yeah, I'm going to keep those pure and produce that niche pork, or I'm going to cross for whatever production value I'm looking for. But I guess even from the marketing standpoint, if, if you go that route, you're the second farm that's producing, then just still having that genetics, that breed line and that registration to say, hey, all of my all of my sires, for example, are, are registered and this is what we're getting. And then whatever they're crossing with, whether it's registered or not. But would you recommend that that would be the ideal situation to go even in a producer from that standpoint? Right. I mean, I think uh, if, if you look at what... Um just you know i like to look outside of the pork industry to get ideas and see what's worked for others and uh, if you look at what certified angus beef has done for the value of registered sires and dams uh, even going into a commercial um, type of a, a production setting where they're not being um you know utilized on registered bulls or uh, registered heifers they still have an opportunity to uh, you know promote you know 
purebred genetic lines that can go and influence uh, somebody else's operation. Uh, now, in a, in a perfect world, obviously everybody uh, would would register everything um, because then you don't lose um, the the genetic lineage and the heritage of the breed. Um, and, and and there's there's enough producers out there that that truly believe in that. And uh, you know, and those are some of our our best members of the American Berkshire Association. Um, but you know, there's there's still value in in having those genetic lines preserved. Uh, to be utilized, you know, outside of just a purebred uh, production setting, um, you know, even though they would lose out on, you know, the marketing opportunity to to have that, you know, purebred registered traceable animal. Yeah, yeah, perfect. All right. Well, uh, one more question about the breed, and then I want to get over and give you time to talk about the association specifically, but. <clears throat> almost like an index that I want for people to be able to come back and reference. What would you, when it comes to confirmation of the Berkshire, what are some key characteristics you all look for? And these are, these are just absolute hills to die on when it comes to the confirmation of the Berkshire breed and, and what to look for in that. Well, I think, um, you know, several traits that have been, have been known and passed down, um, for many generations, um, is is the the structural correctness of these animals in terms of of how they can um, you know move and, and be uh, a valuable asset in a production setting. Um, and, and Berkshires are easy doing um, hogs that you know have the ability to to maintain a consistent flesh, um, but they're also known for for muscling. They may not be um, you know, having that, uh, I'll just call it a, a creased up muscle shape, you know, um, down their back, but, um, hogs that are, that are, um, just really sound, really productive, um, in terms of, of, you know, how their rib and their body shape is designed. Um, and, and you know, some folks, um, are, can easily recognize a Berkshire by that erect ear set, um, and that, that snout that's maybe just a little short and tipped up, um, you know, th that, that I think is, is kind of the staple characteristics of what Berkshires are. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. That's why I even, uh, you're sitting here looking at your logo. I, I appreciate that. Cause I think that whoever drew that did a great job drawing a, a good representation of a Berkshire. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. As a, as a marketing guy, it's my day job. I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, that was by design. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No coincidence, right? Yeah. All right. Well, so so let's talk about uh, the association in particular, and, and we've we've kind of stuck our toe in the water a little bit on that. But uh, the history of the association, you you'd mentioned it's 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 not something that just happened uh, you know, last night. This this is something that's been around for a while. Give us a little history of the association. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's so fascinating to me. I'm a, I'm a history buff. You know, so so when I took this role, I knew that I knew that the association was one of the you know only uh, you know single breed standing associations um, still thriving. Um, but uh, in 1875, um, you know, it was recognized that, that the Berkshire breed needed to form uh, an association to keep the breed pure and ensure its quality was preserved. And those types of things. So um, a lot of a lot of the bigger herds in the country were using imported stock still coming over um, from the UK. And so um, once they kind of agreed to establish this, um, you know, the only hogs that could be imported were directly from English herds. So just to kind of centralize the nucleus of the breed there. Um, and so only those animals would be accepted for registration when the association first started in 1875. Um, so today you could still go back, um, you know, from probably any registration paper and it'd probably take a person a decade to figure it out, but you could probably go all the way back in the history of the records and find something that traces back to an imported animal um, in the late 1800s. So I think that's pretty cool um, myself. Um, the, uh, the association, when it was uh, originally founded, um, 
was in uh, was in Indiana, and then they moved it to Illinois, and then it stayed in Illinois for um, quite some time, and then I believe it was um, oh may not get to quote me on this one, but I believe um, when uh, the National Swine Registry was formed, um, Berkshire's moved from Springfield, Illinois to West Lafayette, Indiana, um, and, and that's where we had been ever since. So uh, our offices are actually uh, conjoined with the National Swine Registry uh, in the same building that the American Yorkshire Club built. And so, um, you know, since then, uh, we've had many, many, uh, you know, presidents and directors and, and folks that have come through uh, the entire history of the association. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've we had uh, several different breed publications. Uh, the most famous is the Berkshire News. Um, that was established in, I believe, the, the late 1920s. Um, and, and that went out to the entire membership and, and to look through some of those. As an advertising guy, Troy, you'll appreciate this. The, the advertisements that were done back then were just were, were so neat and kind of funny to think about, you know, how that resonated with, with breeders and members back then of purebred swine versus what we do today, yeah. um, which a lot has uh, transitioned um, through the youth organizations that are out there. Um, and maybe more of the, the show pig genetics versus um, maybe some of the older line genetics that, that have been out there. So um, it, it's been, it's been a, um, it's been a organization that has changed and evolved so much over time that um, even with the 147 years we've been uh, in business, it, it seems like, um, you know, the evolution still goes um, decade after decade. So uh, very, very old history and very, very cool uh, to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I, I love, I love the fact that it's been around that long and just, just the history associated with that. And of course, my goodness, the, the breed lines that you guys have, I mean, just those records must be extensive and uh, you know, very, very cool to think about, about that from that perspective. So um, you said something there that, that kind of uh, cracked me up a little bit. So you say you share a building with the Yorkshire Club. And so you, do you guys like do you, you kind of rib one another, give each other a hard time from time to time? Or how's that work out? <laughs> well, well, you always have to, you know, in, in any uh, office setting. It's, uh, but no, we've, we've actually, um, so the, the National Swine Registry, um, for those who are listening who may not be familiar, it's made up of four breeds, um, Hampton Rock, uh, Yorkshire and Landrace. And uh, so the, the American Yorkshire Club originally owned the building mm. prior to NSR forming. And after they formed, obviously, everything uh, came under one roof. So uh, since we've been here, you know, we're kind of down the hall here a little bit, but we, we've actually worked quite a bit with uh, the NSR on the junior side um, of things with the National Junior Swine Association um, youth programs um, and also with some of our national sales and events, we uh, we collaborate with them as well. And and so, uh, yeah, every once in a while, I have to go down and give them a little nudge and a little jab, but uh, we uh, we certainly have a great working relationship here. Awesome, yeah, that's great to, to have that collaboration because, you know, kind of all on the same team, just have different uh, jerseys we wear, I guess, in that sense. Sure. So good stuff. So, I, I, you know, I know this, my goodness, this is probably opening a whole nother can of worms. It's just a discussion all by itself or a podcast all by itself. But from your perspective, how much has the affordability of DNA testing and the readily accessible testing opportunities changed registration, not only for, for Berkshire, but for anybody? I mean, from your experience, how much has that changed? And has that been a total game changer? Yeah, in, in some ways uh, it has because, um, you know, some people take advantage of, of the opportunities that we have out there for genetic testing. Uh, there's um, there's several different companies that we work with, but, um, you know, one of them can do a full evaluation of, um, you know, a single pig's genetic traits for uh, meat quality markers, for production traits, um, and, and not to mention just, um, you know, the stress gene and the napole gene 
um, those type of things that affect meat quality um, testing. Uh, but also, you know, from our standpoint, um, you know, the advancements that have been made in genetic testing uh, have allowed us to, um, you know, navigate the waters of, you know, potential influence of crossbreeding and things like that within the purebred registry, um, you know, to kind of be able to manage and, and track and watch those things and have a DNA bank file of, uh, you know, of animals that, you know, we can go back and, and compare other animals to and things of that nature. So it's really come a long way and we've got a lot of producers that utilize uh, those things. And through our association, we require, um, you know, a couple DNA tests uh, for, for herd sires or boars that are going to be utilized um, if, if folks wants, want to record litters out of those. Um, you know, the, the testing uh, costs and things like that, obviously everything um, in life has become uh, more inflated as, as time has gone on. But sure. at the same time, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily deterred or encouraged uh, folks to register uh, from that standpoint. So I do think there's quite a few that take advantage of it. Um, and there's some that, that have to do it out of necessity. Um, and of course, like anything else uh, that costs money, you'll have some folks uh, maybe complain and not register as many litters um, costs. But uh, I think that's just the nature of working for a nonprofit breed association. Yeah, right, right, great. Great. Excellent. Well, let me ask you this question. And, and, and this is where, you know, my ignorance is going to come in a little bit and I'm, I'm going to have to have you kind of steer this in a direction, but I, I, I would, I would love for our listeners to, to have a scenario explained to them. So maybe even using like a, a an example per se, uh, of why they should register, well, not necessarily why we've established why, but how they would go about registering. So let's say, and I'm sure there's variations of this, so this is where I need you to plug in what you think is the proper variation. But let's say I get two, I get a sire and a dam uh, that's registered Berkshire, and I have an incredible litter, and I'm like, oh wow, these are these are awesome pigs. I want to be able to sell these as as um, as full blood Berkshire. What do I need to do as that farmer? What's the step I need to do? And then maybe, like I said, throw in throw in some other yeah different maybe example that that makes that a little more complicated or a little easier. If that makes any sense yeah yeah so so i i will throw this uh example out because it's the one that, that i see the most of um somebody who's never raised virtues before they've never raised purebred swine before uh starting fresh so they go to a farmer um and they purchase you know a mating pair they bring them home they have a litter um and then they call the association and say hey i'd like to record this litter of pigs well the first question i ask is are you a member um, because that will make a difference in price. Um, and then the second question I ask is, are the pigs transferred in your name? So they might be a member uh, or they might have signed up for membership, but maybe they don't uh, have pigs that registered in their name. So that would, um, first things first, we would have to get a transfer initiated from the breeder um, who originally raised those animals. So once a transfer happens, uh, basically, uh, that breeder goes through the process of submitting the transfer to our office. Um, and then, so now you technically and rightfully own those animals registration papers. So then that's where the process starts. Um, so luckily in the digital age that we operate in, uh, a lot of that could be done uh, through our website at AmericanBirdshire.com. And there's a lot of resources on there um, that can talk you through how to register a litter um, and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, uh, one of the, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of folks that raise heritage breeds um, that don't record their litters is is the ear notching process, um, and so you know that the the whole uh, litter processing um, you know part of the equation uh, is important not only um, you know for the registration process but also just for animal identification um, in your own farm. So. Uh, so that'd be kind of scenario one is, is um, you know, you buy a mating pair, um, you want those things to happen. But at the same time, you know, if, you're, if your boar has not been DNA tested, you know, we require uh, two DNA tests uh, to happen. Uh, one of those is for the stress gene um, and one of those is for the napal gene. And uh, both it, currently um, until 2025, it does not matter what the status of those are. 
Uh, they just have to have a known status um, through our association in order to record letters out of a sire. So th there's there's a little bit of a you know front work that needs to be done uh, before the litter itself can be recorded. Um, so so once you go through the ear notching process, um, you know then there's forms uh, that basically determine you know. Um, what the sex and ear notch is of each animal. Uh, those get put into our registration system here in our office. Um, and then uh, once that is complete, those those registration papers will then be sent out uh, to the breeder and you will have the opportunity then to sell, market, um, or even transfer those offspring to somebody else as a new owner. Hmm. Awesome. All right. So, wow. That... That was such a better job than what I could have come up with. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, and I apologize for the delay there because I was actually typing that out. I wanted that in my notes. So so in a perfect scenario, and, and this is where I really want the listeners to kind of, kind of you know, if you're driving, obviously focus on the road, but but listen to what, what we're saying here or what Corey's about to explain or, or to confirm. So if we're doing that situation, as you mentioned, I go to a farm, I, uh, you know, I buy some, some pigs from a breeder and I bring them home and, and I'm going to breed them and, and, and get to that point where I have that first litter, that there's actually an order of operation that should happen, not all at once, but if, if we're doing things the, the, the right way, then when I take possession of those pigs from a breed farm, then I should ask that owner to do the transfer and get that started. But then I also should be become very quickly a member of the breeding association because it's going to help with cost. It's also going to give us access to a lot of data and and, and the resources the website offers. But then there's, there's there's two tests for the board that need to be done, and that's like you said, the stress gene and the napole gene. But then we also need to understand how and and the, not only the the method but the process of ear notching when that litter actually is being is being born. That 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 process has to be done. Is that is that a good assumption or a good uh, lineup of all that? Either I explained it very well, you're very good at taking notes. That's exactly it. Yes. <laughs> great. Yeah. So, so I think, and, and yeah, wow. I mean, that's, that's a great example because I think so many of us, the pigs are on the ground and they say, yeah, because I just speak from my own experience. It's like the pigs are on the ground. They're all alive. The mother didn't crush them or, you know, something, you know, something horribly wrong didn't happen because of either my poor infrastructure or just, you know, bad luck, however you want to chalk it up. And then they think, oh, great, beautiful litter. Now it's time to do some of these things. And, and the, I guess the point I want to get across based on your experience is, you know, back that truck up and, and do some of these things as they go along, because you know, not only is it going to make that process easier, but it, it's going to keep you from, from stubbing your toe. If, if you haven't done the notching and you, you have no idea, the litter's all standing there, you know, three days later and you're like, well, I don't remember who's who. And, uh, right. and that be becomes a big issue. So are those resources, what we just listed off there, is that something that's available on the website? So you know, a detailed explanation of, of ear notching, the process, and, and how all that happens? Or is that just assumed that people know that? Uh, where, where do you find that key resource? Yeah, it is. If you, if you go to AmericanBerkshire.com, uh, um, under the Member Services tab, there, there's forms and resources, uh, how to become a member, our policies, um, you know, different state association opportunities, uh, learning more about Berkshire genetics. Uh, there, there's tons of resources there, but for, for this specifically, going to our forms and resources section under our membership services tab is the best way to find that information. Excellent. So, so here's a dumb question for you. Um, a, how much does membership cost? And B, do you have to possess Berkshire pigs on your farm to be a member? Um, I'll answer the, the second question first. No, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to own a Berkshire. You don't even have to ever have farrowed a Berkshire or even looked at one in your entire <laughs> life if you want to be a member of the association. So that's, that's the good news. There you go. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, to answer your first question, um, a senior membership, um, which we have, we have two different kinds of membership. We have a senior, uh, well, actually three now, uh, we have a senior member, a junior member, um, and a lifetime membership. Um, and so for um, a junior membership as anyone under 22 years of age um, does not have to pay anything to be a member of the association. Um, so they can go through the process of uh, recording letters and everything else. You know, obviously they still have to pay for those services, uh, but in order just to be a member of the association, 
um, those junior memberships are free. Um, a senior membership um, is a, a one-time payment of $10. Um, and then a, it is required to have a herd mark, um, which essentially is a set of letters, um, four characters right before um, the actual name of the animal. So if you raise a pig, Troy, let's say your herd mark is T-R-O-Y, Okay. And you name a pig uh, Bartholomew. Um, the the pig on the registration paper would show up as T R O Y Bartholomew, and then the ear notch of the pig. Let's say it's one dash one. So, yeah. so that you know herd mark at the front of that is required. So that way we could trace back and know exactly who raised that pig. Yeah. Um, as we look through lineage, so that's required as well. Uh, so this is this is just if you're signing up for the very first time. So you have your ten dollar um, one-time payment to to start the setup, and then you have a five dollar herd mark, um, and then additionally there's a seventy five dollar maintenance fee um, that is that is annually, hmm. um, and so the um, the advantage of being a lifetime member um, is it is a fifteen hundred dollar one-time fee. Um, and there, there's some advantages to that. There's no, there's no late fees. Um, you don't have to pay your annual maintenance fee, uh, and several other things that are included in that. And so, um, you know, and, and that's for the lifetime of a single herd mark. So if, if somebody, um, you know, becomes a member of the association and they want to pass that herd mark down to a, to a grandkid or a great grandkid, uh, the lifetime of that herd mark can exist um, so long as somebody establishes that lifetime membership. Yeah. So, yeah. So multi multi-generational yeah, multi opportunity there, it sounds like. Right. No, nah, man, that's incredible. So um, I love that. So uh, very, very appropriate points of entry. So for the youth, obviously, to get them involved, you know, zero uh, economic barrier there. And then, uh, you know, for those that are kind of sticking their toe in the water, you know, we're, we're not looking at, um, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars here to, to get a, to be a member and to take advantage of that. Uh, it sounds like if, if I did my math properly, I did go to public school, but if I did my math properly, it sounds like less than a hundred bucks a year and, and you're up and rolling. And then, you know, if you're going to look at multi-generational 20 years plus, then it would make sense to, to invest in a lifetime at that situation. Sure. Yep. Cool. Good deal. Good deal. All right. Well, um, I, I, I promised you I wouldn't keep you more than an hour. So I'm, I've got one more question I want to ask you uh, because there's, as, as a marketing guy, I, I appreciate this drastically. I mean, this is, you go to people's websites and you look at a website and say, yeah, that's a website. And then you go to people's website and say, this is a resource. And, and, and when I go to the uh, uh, AmericanBerkshire.com website, it's a resource there it looks like and, and of course i'm not a member so i can't dr even drill down to even begin to get into the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about here but just what i see there there is a ton of resources on this website so so how much how uh, i know this is a dumb question but how much importance do you guys put on the website and how much should members understand or people considering membership understand just what a resource the website is yeah yeah you bring up a good point i, I think the 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 Number one thing people do if they want to find out information is they go to Google and they type something in their box. And so when AmericanBerkshire.com pops up is the first thing when somebody searches Berkshire pigs, um, you know, our goal is to ensure that that website um, can tell the story of the ABA um, and tell the story of Berkshire without have, ever having met somebody. Um, you know, so, so that I think is the number one goal, uh, of our site is to provide that resource that if nobody's ever heard of Berkshire swine before, they can go to the website and virtually learn everything there is to know about, um, about our association and about the breed, um, in particular, um, on top of that, you know, we like to highlight, um, all parts of the Berkshire swine industry, um, because it is multifaceted, um, at one point in time, Berkshires were labeled as the confinement breed. Um, and today, I like to label them as the dual purpose breed. Um, you know, Berkshires are not only um, 
you know, high in meat quality, but uh, they are also very successful um, in a show ring setting as well. And so, um, you know, we, we like to try to have all those resources available, but more importantly, um, we are about driving membership and increasing litter registrations um, and transfers. And so, you know, being able to have those resource, resources under there, especially in our member services tab uh, is very, very important um, to us. So there's a, there's a lot to digest throughout the website. Um, we, we've obviously made some tweaks over the course of time here to make sure that it's easy to navigate and, and you can find the information you're looking for. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is a tool and a resource that we hope our membership and, and prospective members uh, find valuable. Yes, yeah, yeah. And just from a total website geek, uh, the platform you're using, I'm very familiar with that platform. It's a very solid platform. So it's it's going to treat you well for a very long time. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys you guys made the right choice and, and whoever built that building the right, built it on the right platform. So good stuff. Well, man, I, uh, Corey, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and really sharing your wisdom of, uh, of not only the breed, but of the association. And I know we have a lot of listeners, um, people that have come on as guests, but then people that respond that we know there's a lot of Berkshire stock out there in the pastured pig audience. So uh, those of you guys that, that have that, whether it's, um, whether it's a black pig with white spots that you're calling Berkshire or it's a legit Berkshire, I, I hope you're really kind of paying attention to this podcast and, and explore more what you can do with that breed and, and, um, and I don't want to say clean up your breed line, but, but focus on that more to, to really establish um, some great genetics. And, and I think it's going to, to pay off well in the long run for your farm. So uh, I hope everyone listening looks, uh, looks for this and uh, checks out the website. Obviously, I, the typical question I ask, Corey, for everyone when they're closing out is how can people find you online? Obviously, we, we've hit the website, AmericanBerkshire.com. But you guys actually have a pretty good social media presence as well, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and uh, you know we we've actually um, just established a, an American Berkshire Association um, community page. Um, so it's a private group um, on Facebook. That I think is a little bit more hyper focused on uh, membership, you know, engagement, and, and kind of building that community of of um, you know folks having the opportunity to voice their opinions. Um, you know, whether that be about breed improvement or, or other things that are happening within the association or within the breed that, you know, uh, they'd like to get other people's advice on or just kind of get different information on as well. So we're, we're really, we, we like our social media online presence. We think that, uh, you know, that's truly what, what being a part of the association is. It's, it is a community. And so uh, to have that interaction and conversation um, amongst um, our membership and, and, and other Berkshire enthusiasts is, is very valuable. So yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go on and, and follow uh, our American Berkshire Association social media channels uh, uh, across the board. Very good, very good. I also see there's a YouTube channel. Um, uh, yes. It has, it has some pretty good videos out there, even uh, from the shows and, and some, some how-to type information. So that, uh, that can all be linked. I'm gonna put down in the show notes the link to the website because I really want to drive people there first. And of course, that's where you're going to be able to find all the social links and those type of things as well. But start with the, uh, the website and check that out. And again, if you're, if you're considering uh, Berkshire, then I would recommend jumping on board and becoming a member. Well, Corey, again, I can't uh, thank you enough for your time and, and sharing your knowledge, wisdom, knowledge and wisdom with us. And man, I, I pray you have a great week. Well, thanks, Troy. Same to you. Appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, hopefully the audience finds some value. All right. Excellent. Well, take care. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> well, listening to that playback, I had forgotten that that was uh, one of the interviews that I did when I had the creeping crud. So uh, I don't know if you picked up on that, but the the voice and the um, congestion and all that was uh, on the verge of going. So I uh, hope that wasn't too uncomfortable and maybe even heard some extra lip smacking going on there. It was, I was pounding the Jolly Ranchers just to keep from going into a coughing fit. So appreciate Corey coming on and, and putting up with that. Um, fortunately, that wasn't a video podcast because it would have looked like the um, uh, show what geek I am, the xenomorph in the movie Aliens. Just, you know, this 
this constant flow of stuff. <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that. But uh, man, I really appreciate the conversation with Corey. It was exciting to talk with them and, and looking forward to adding some additional breed associations to our discussion uh, as we kind of do a deep dive into those specific breeds and talk about the pros and cons of not only the breed, but the uh, associations associated with them. Well, all right. If you guys have any uh, topics you'd like me to discuss, if you'd like to come on the podcast, or if you'd like to, um, if you'd just like to complain, you know, this is, this is just a good time to complain. Everybody in the world's complaining right now. So if you just like to complain and you'd like to just get it out, just, just give me a call. I'll, I'll be your ears. I'll listen to it. I, I may put you on mute at some point or, or go do some laundry. But um, if you got a vent, just, <laughs> just get it out. <laughs> I'll be a little saucy tonight. No, really, if you would like to come on the podcast, if you've got some suggestions for uh, upcoming episodes, by all means, reach out to me. You can go to thepasturedpig.com and use our entry form there. You can just email me at troy at redtoolhouse.com and just let me know what you'd like. Well, again, I can't thank you all enough. Those of you that support us on Patreon, appreciate that. Uh, and again, if you would have the opportunity to join us on that and, and support our efforts here, I would be deeply, deeply appreciative. Well, I pray everyone have a great week and enjoy this fall weather while it lasts. I think some of you New Englanders are getting ready to lose it all, but we may hold on to another couple weeks here before things get too crazy. <laughs> all right, take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.